We're now going to jump into reading from John chapter 10. We read the Word of God every single week here at City Light because we long to see God speak to us and to hear His voice um, as, it is, as it is recorded in Scripture. And so we're looking at John chapter 10 from verse 1 through to verse 18. And this is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Well, we're going to dive into John 10 in just a moment. And I love this passage. And so I'm going to pray before we jump in that it would be an encouragement to your soul. That if you were here and a follower of Jesus, that it would just enliven and refresh your soul and your desire to follow Christ with all your heart. And if you're investigating Christianity, that you might see the very heart of God and who He is and what He is like as revealed through His Son, Jesus. So I'm going to pray for our time before we start. Father, we thank You that You are the great shepherd. You are our great provider. That You are the one who's given us all we need in Christ for life and abundant life. We just pray that you would still our hearts and minds to hear from your word this morning, to know that this is your voice, and that as we hear, that we might be encouraged, that we might be spurred on to love others and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. It, it has to be said that envy is one of the strangest and most foolish emotions that we can feel. It is actually, if you think about it, it's the opposite of love. So if love unites your life to another life, where their joy becomes your joy, their sorrow becomes your sorrow, envy does the opposite. It divides us. Where other people's joy becomes our sorrow, and their sorrow becomes our joy. Envy asks questions like, why can't my life be like theirs? Why don't I get what they get? Why don't I have the kind of money or ease or whatever it is that they have? 
Why don't I have that career? Why is everything so easy for them? Why do they have a relationship when I don't? Why don't I have those kind of friends while instead I have this kind of friends? Why is their family like that while mine's like this? Why do they have a marriage like that while I have a marriage like this? Why aren't my kids like their kids? Why isn't my life like their life? These are the kinds of questions that Envy asks. But if you're here and a follower of Jesus, there can be another layer to it. There can be a kind of religious envy almost. It can feel at times maybe in your worst moments like God has given you a bad deal. It can feel like, God, why is it that even people who don't follow you seem to have a life that's, that's working out better than mine? I've been good and they haven't, and yet they have all this stuff and I don't. They don't even believe in you or they're a bad Christian, yet their life seems to be easy and good and everything just seems to work out for them. Why isn't it working out for me? Or even with sin, it might be like, look, God, the stuff that you say not to do doesn't seem that bad to do. Why should I be stuck here resisting or fighting against temptation when it's so much easier to just give in? Why do I have all these commitments, meeting with other Christians, having to serve them, being in fellowship with difficult people, while, while it would just be so much easier if I didn't have to? If I didn't follow God, I'd have so much more time, so much more money, I could do what I wanted with it. Uh, life would just be easier. And in case you're thinking this is a modern problem, it's not. Come with me to Psalm 73 and listen to the ancient complaints of a follower of God. In Psalm 73, it starts, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the property of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, which in the ancient world is a compliment. By the way, that's a, in, a, in, a, in a place where food is scarce, that's a sign of like privilege and advantage. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Do you hear the cry? God, I've followed you. And look at these people who not only, it's not just that they don't know you or acknowledge you, even the wicked, those who other people acknowledge as wicked, even for them, their life seems to be going so well. And yet I'm rebuked every morning. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. I've served, I've loved, I've done the right thing. Where's my reward? What do I get to show for it? What do I have? This is the call of envy. And there is only one answer. Unless you believe that the pursuit of joy and the pursuit of God are one and the same thing, you will not make it very long as a follower of Jesus. And if you're investigating Christianity, unless you believe that what you're investigating is that the pursuit of Jesus and the pursuit of joy are the same thing, you won't be at it for very long. And Jesus speaks to this in this passage when he says, I am the good shepherd and I've come to bring life 
and life abundant. That what he promises is life eternal, but not just pie in the sky when you die, but the idea that he as the good shepherd has the answers to life right now as well. And that to follow him or to put your faith in Jesus is not simply some kind of like divine or spiritual fire insurance for later on, but the belief that to entrust my entire life, my decisions about what would be the happiest possible life, to put that in Jesus' hands is to trust that he is the good shepherd and that he is the shepherd of my soul. And it's this that he speaks to when he opens his, 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 really his sermon here in John chapter 10. Come with me to John 10, sentences 1 to 6, when he starts this way. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought, them all, brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Jesus explains something pretty simple that anyone in the ancient Near East in a rural kind of context would have understood, and it's this. Sheep know the voice of their shepherd. They didn't use sheepdogs in the ancient Near East. They didn't use other animals to herd them. The way that you controlled your sheep was by your own voice and by using calls, and sheep knew who their shepherd was, and the shepherd knows the sheep. And here Jesus is making the point that his people he calls here sheep, which I realize is a bit of a pill to swallow if you are a follower of Jesus. Sheep is, there are no sports teams, well maybe there are, but there are very few sports teams with a mascot as a sheep. And the reason for that is they're not particularly impressive. They are bottom of the food chain in many ways when it comes to the animal kingdom. They're not especially smart. They're not really even that attractive. Sorry if you really do love sheep, but I, d I don't imagine I'm really hitting a nerve here for anyone. But not only that, but they're, they're just not that smart. They need a shepherd and they need guidance. And here Jesus is saying, my people are sheep. They are defenseless. But more than that, he says, my sheep know my voice. And they know the difference between my voice and false teachers. They hear my voice and they respond to it. He says, my followers follow me. Those who hear me know that it's their God speaking to them and they want to follow me. You cannot be a follower of Jesus without listening to his voice and doing what he says. In his book, Multiply, Francis Chan writes this. He says, Many people in the church have decided to take on the name of Christ and nothing else. This would be like Jesus walking up to those first disciples and saying, Hey, would you guys mind identifying yourselves with me in some way? Don't worry, I don't actually care if you do anything or if you don't change your lifestyle at all. I'm just looking for people who are willing to say they believe in me and call themselves Christians. No, of course not. When he calls his disciples, he says to them, follow me, and they follow. They upend their lives, and they follow him with everything. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. They hear me when I call to them, and when I say to them, follow me, and they come, and they do follow. But the claim isn't just that his sheep know him, but he says, but I know them and call them out by name. God is not a grand impersonal force like some kind of supernatural force or karma that has really no, in, no personal interaction with people. He says, I know my sheep, by I call them out by name. He knows you that personally. He knows you that closely. 
And the claim of God here is that there is a closeness between Jesus and his people. He knows his sheep, his sheep know him, they hear his voice and they listen to him. And the reason for this is because of what he says next. In John 10, 7-9 we read, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So in this passage, I don't know if you noticed, but we get two I am statements for the price of one. The first one he kind of throws in there as a softball is I am the door. And he says it here. He says, I am the way to salvation. If anyone is going to come to salvation, to be saved, to have life eternal, it's going to be through Jesus. Jesus isn't pointing to the way. He's not saying, I know how to get saved. He says, I am the door. It happens through me. But then he goes on to say this weird thing about thieves and robbers. He says, everyone who came before me were thieves and robbers. The sheep didn't listen to them, but they will listen to me. What, what exactly is he going on about here? Is he giving them just kind of good advice about keeping their goods and, and that sort of thing secure? Now he's, he's drawing on a passage from Ezekiel that is probably one of the deepest criticisms of Israel's leaders in the Old Testament. Just come with me to e Ezekiel 34 from just 7 to 16 and read what God says, the damning statement he makes about the people who were appointed to lead God's people and were meant to be shepherds and yet weren't leading. Look what he says. He says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not sh searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand to put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the, the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered in a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I'll bring, out from the, I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I'll bring them into their own land and I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the un uninhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they, pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Leaders of God's people referred to as shepherds, and they did not serve God's people or God. They took advantage of the people, they fed themselves, they got rich, whilst the flock was left. And God says... I will stand against the shepherds of Israel. These leaders who are supposed to be leaders of my people, I'll remove them and I myself will look after my sheep. 
You hear those words at the end when he says, I'll come back, I'll bring back the lost, I'll bind up those who are injured, I'll bring back the strayed, and those who have been feeding themselves, I will judge. He says, I will feed them in justice. God's people had suffered under false leaders, leaders who were thieves and robbers, who took from the people that they were supposed to serve. And God says, I'll I'll do justice, and I myself will come to my people. And the people of Israel had that passage in the back of their minds when Jesus in John 10 stands up before them and says this. Look what he says in, in sentence 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the fulfillment of that promise in Ezekiel 34. That unlike those leaders who have pretended to be leaders, who have promised to bring life while instead taking it, he says, I will come and shepherd my flock. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Instead of letting the sheep die for me and my benefit, I'm going to lay down my life for them. And not only that, but he's the one who does it. No one takes it from him, no one makes him do it, but he himself will willingly lay down his life for his sheep. And this is the message of the gospel. That we have rejected God and what the Bible calls sin. We have cut ourselves off from God, which leads to death and judgment before God. We read in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And yet Jesus, as the good shepherd, comes and stands in our place and receives the penalty on our behalf and dies the death that we should have died in order to set us free. In Isaiah 53.6, Isaiah writes, All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, who has promised to come, the sin of us all. So Christ dies for us, meaning that the way to salvation is not to earn it, it's not any good works that you contribute, but it stands alone on Jesus' atoning death on your behalf. Your debt is completely paid. And if you don't get this, you will never understand Christianity. Unless you understand that the only way that you may stand before a holy God and be welcomed home is through Jesus' death on your behalf, you will never understand Christianity. Not only that, you will never understand what it means to live out the Christian life. Because at the heart of the gospel is the truth that you didn't earn your way to God, but God did everything on your behalf to bring you into relationship with Him. And this transforms not just how you come to know God in the first place, but how you continue to live as a follower of Jesus. That all of it, from start to finish, is by grace. You can think of it in this way. There's a story, and it's probably apocryphal, so I've taken the names and some of the details out. But it was a story of a slave being set free. The story runs like this, that a man went to a slave block to an auction to buy a slave boy. 
And as the slave looked at the man bidding on him, he imagined that this was another person who was going to set him to endless labor and hard work and cruelty. But as the man won the bid, he took the boy aside and told him, you are free. He said, what does that mean? He says, it means you are free. Does that mean, the boy said, that I can say whatever I want to say? He said, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean, the boy said, that I can be whatever I want to be? He replied, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. The boy said, does that mean that I can go wherever I want to go? The man said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And the boy said, then I will go with you. And you get the meaning of that story, right? If someone were willing to pay the price to set you free, who else would you want to follow? And in the same way in the gospel, Jesus demonstrates that he is the good shepherd. And that he didn't come to you and say, look, here is your debt of sin. I'll pay it off initially, but over many years, you need to pay it back to me by doing what I say. Or, you know what, I'll pay it off for you, but whenever I feel like it, I get to bring it up. The fact that I had to die for you. And that will always be the thing that I have over you. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd because I laid down my life for the sheep. Free of charge. I died in your place. And he suffered on our behalf. I was pondering this week whether or not the cross was so brutal in a way so that there would be no way of getting around the fact that it was Jesus who suffered and died in our place for our good. That maybe if he died another way, we'd be like, well, he rose again, so it doesn't really count. It's kind of his job to sort of, you know, take a hit for us. But when you consider the cross and what the good shepherd was willing to suffer for those who didn't only reject him but hated him, that they might have life and life to the full, life abundantly, Can there be any doubt that he is a good shepherd and that our lives are safest in his hands? So the truth is that Jesus is the good shepherd, that he alone has authority to give life and life to the full. And that means that to pursue life to the full and to pursue joy and to pursue Christ is the same thing. We are not missing out on something or have not been ripped off or sold short. There is no reason for Christ to command you to do anything except that it's for your good and your joy and his glory. He doesn't command you to do things that he knows will make you miserable simply because he's like, well, you have to pay off your debt. Or he makes you do things to miss out on things in this life because you'll get a payoff in the life to come. No, he is the good shepherd. He needs to be entrusted with all of our souls. And so this means a couple of things for us. For the first, it means this. There is no such thing as a halfway Christian. In the, in the first youth talk I think I ever gave, I, gave the, I think it was called Don't Be a 50 Cent Christian. And that wasn't, that wasn't to weave in like a cool pop culture reference at the time, but I'm, I'm not above that. But that just wasn't what it was at the time. I gave the illustration like this. I said, look, if you were hungry and thirsty at the same time, and there was, a, there was a drinks machine and a food machine. And for each of those, just for the sake of the illustration, everything costs $1. Dollar for a drink, dollar for food. And you have $1. The most foolish thing you could do would be to split it into two 50-cent pieces and put it in both machines. Because if you did that, what do you get in the end? You get nothing. You're better off going just one or the other. And you might be like, wow. That is such helpful advice, Jeremy. If I ever find myself in that obscure situation, I will know exactly what to do. Thank you. But the point of it is this. While we can see the foolishness of it in that scenario, 
How often do people try to do this with God? They come, they hear about the gospel and think, oh, like, I like some of the stuff about Jesus. I like the idea of there being a God and that he loves me and forgives me and all of this kind of stuff. But I'm not confident that what he says about how I use my time, my money, the commands he has about sexuality, that's some of that stuff I'm like, I don't really, I'm not sure. So what I'll do is I'll do a bit of both. I'll be a Christian, but I'll also kind of make decisions for myself and sort of do a bit half and half, half the world and half for Jesus. Jesus says, if you believe I'm the good shepherd or not, it's either all of your life or none of it. And make mistake, you cannot half follow Jesus any more than you can be half born. And this is not because obedience makes you saved, not at all. We're saved by faith alone, through Christ alone. But if you don't trust Jesus with your life now, how do you trust him with your life for eternity? If you don't believe that he's come to bring life and life to the full, maybe you haven't understood the claims that he makes here in John 10 that he, he is the good shepherd. And anyone who knows him truly follows him fully. There are no half-believers. But if you are here and convinced that Jesus is the good shepherd and you have entrusted your whole life to him, but right now you are just feeling beset with envy, feeling like, look, I know that God loves all of his flock, but I feel like he loves some of his sheep a little bit more than others. And I'm maybe towards the back of the pack, maybe not like a, a premium type sheep, not a merino. I'm sort of one of the other ones that's sort of at the back. And there's a growing cloud of doubt that Jesus really is the good shepherd and that he loves you generally, but the, the idea that he would love you specifically and is for you is, is at the moment a belief that you're struggling to hold on to. There really is only one solution to it. I mean, effectively, there are two, but there's only one that works. The first one that you can try that never works, for whatever reason, even though logically it should, the one that never works is to compare down. I don't know why this never works, but if you try to feel content by thinking on the fact that you have more than other people, for some reason it only works for maybe a, a short amount of time. And it should, because if you're thinking about, if you really struggle with the idea of like, I feel like this person's got this and they've got that, then it should work to go the other way and think about all the people who have less than you. But even if that happens, for, for a time you might feel better, but in the end it just it doesn't work. And the reason for it is, I think this, that focusing on other people's misery is not going to be a source of joy, and shouldn't be, especially when you phrase it like that. The only thing that can help you see that Christ is good is to see the goodness of him and that he has been abundantly good to me. To have a firm and solid belief that Christ has been overwhelmingly good and gracious to me. Let's bring it back to, to Psalm 73. A psalm that so helpfully articulates someone who is following God but feeling like for a time, like it's almost like they've been given a bad deal. Look at how this person resolves this issue in their heart. Come with me to Psalm 73, to the final verses from 21 to 28. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. This is towards God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, 
and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. If you are feeling, as the psalmist did, embittered, or as he puts it, pricked in heart, just contemplate how good Jesus has been towards you. Remember his words when he says that the thief comes only to kill and destroy. But he has come that we might have life and have it to the full. Think of all that we have in Christ because he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. Your sin, which was an unbearable weight, pulling you under to death and to judgment, is gone. It's extinguished, forgiven. That it says in Scripture that as far as the east is from west, so far has God sent your sins away from you. He knows you, your comings and your goings, when you rise and when you sleep. And not only that, but He has raised you to new life and set you at the right hand of Christ. You are irreversibly saved in Him. Your future is sure, so that when death comes, you may welcome it as a doorway to your true life rather than the end of your life. And that every day, that as you are closer to death, you are actually becoming more alive. And he has given you his word now that you might follow him with your whole heart and whole life, that he loves you and has poured out his life for you. And even after all of that, it's worth asking the question, isn't it? Has envy ever been good to you? Has it ever made your heart sing? Has it ever filled you with love for humankind and your neighbor? It's never happened. No one's ever written a hymn to envy in that way. But it is Satan's design that we would think in these ways that it might rob us of the joy and all that we have in Christ. So I want to finish on this as we contemplate Jesus' claim to be the good shepherd. And the knowledge that he is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. I thought what we might do to finish our time before we stand and sing is to reflect on Psalm 23. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this out in full. And if you are here and a follower of Christ, you might want to echo these words in your head. But more than that, if at the moment, if what your soul needs is a sense of God's goodness towards you, can I challenge you maybe even to make this psalm the part of the word of God that you reflect on daily over this week? And see whether it doesn't minister to your heart. In Psalm 23, David reflects on just how good God is and how good it is to bring our life under the good shepherd. Read with me in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your Spirit we might have eyes to see how much you have done for us in Christ Jesus. That we would be able to say along with the psalmist that you are our portion. That though our heart and our flesh may fail, that you are our portion and strength forever. That we might have strength to say together with followers of Christ all around the world that in Jesus we have all we need. That we have life and life abundant. And may it strengthen us 
with the challenges and sufferings of this life. But may you grant us a joy in Christ that is indestructible. And may we encourage one another in this, even as we wait for the day when Christ will return to wipe away every tear from every eye. And until then, Father, we pray that our joy would be a witness to the fact that there is a God who saves and who gives life freely. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.